I, uh, I don't know a lot of you because I go to the 9 o'clock service and then go to Sunday school, but it's a pleasure to see those I know and those I don't yet know. Uh, my name is Bruce Case. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, it's a privilege to serve in that capacity. It's also a great pleasure to serve in that capacity. I love the other elders I serve with. I love worshiping with you. Uh, and I love being able to open God's word together. Let's pray before we do so. Father, you and you alone know the secrets of every heart out here. You know who's feeling strong and whether it's in their strength or your strength. You know who needs encouragement. You know who needs correction. You know who needs vision. You know who needs hope. Your word is sufficient to supply all of these to everyone in a single passage. And so I pray you would do that. I pray as we open Acts 25 together, you would humble the proud and give grace to the humble and just take us where we need to be for our sake and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, a brother came up to me after the first service this morning and he said, uh, people don't preach from Acts 25. And it kind of surprised me that he said that because he was right. Um, and I don't know if, if you know that, but if you go online and you look at different people that, uh, that publish their material and you see a series and you see a series on Romans or you see a series on Isaiah and you come to a series on Acts, more often than not, you will find 27 sermons. Acts has 28 chapters. Guess which one they skip? Acts 25. Why do they skip it? I think because it's an easy one to just kind of tack a little bit onto the end of 24 and a little bit onto the beginning of 26 and just keep right on moving. There's not as much action as in some of the other chapters. Uh, Paul doesn't get to speak a lot. His defense is one sentence. Um, his, his appeal to Caesar is maybe three, if that. Um, so it's a different kind of chapter. But I've long been convinced that God has not called me to be his editor. That I'm to go to him and say, we, we really could cut this down a little bit. You know, put these two verses at the end of 24 and these two verses at the beginning of 26, and we're set. If he wrote it at this church, we read it. And we see what does God have to say to us. And I believe he has a great deal to say to us. So I want to start with that question. What is it in this chapter that so many people avoid that God, through Luke, the human author, wants to make sure that we take note of? And I think there is an answer to that question. I think there's a good answer. I think Luke understands that Acts 25 is just part of this legitimate but necessary series of illustrations of how Paul lived out what he said were his goals for his life and his ministry. There's many people who can talk the talk. There's fewer people who walk the walk. And part of Acts 25 is showing us that Paul indeed walked the walk. Paul makes two mentions of Paul's goals. I don't know that Paul ever made a list, said, here's my life goals. But we know what some of them are because he tells us and Luke, the author of Acts, also records them for us. One of them is Acts 20, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, 
constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's probably Paul's number one goal in his life. Just let me tell you about the grace of God in Christ. He's got a second goal. It's explicit. Um, and it was to strengthen the souls of other believers so that they might tell of the grace of God even in the midst of suffering. I get that from Acts 14, 19. Paul's in Lystra on one of his missionary journeys. Um, and, uh, and he gets stoned. We'll read of it. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose and entered the city. Would you do that? They just tried to kill you in a very painful way, and they came very close to succeeding. I don't know how the man walks. He rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned. This is Paul. They returned to the city that stoned him. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, which had supplied all the agitators to get them to stone Paul. What do they do? Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul used his most incredibly painful experiences not to get pity from other people but to strengthen other people. He knew that God does not abandon you even when the stone strikes home again and again. And it appears that telling just one or two stories, one or two chapters of Paul's afflictions, of the persecutions, of the injustices that he endured, is not enough. Much of Paul's life as a Christian was marked by suffering. And it is his perseverance under repeated abuse, including unjust jail time that he's serving in Acts 25, that is apparently what we need to see. We need to see that suffering doesn't always end in an hour, a day, a week, a year. It can go on and on and on. Paul says it happens, and Luke records it, and the events of chapter 25 are part of that. Let's dive in. Acts 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the providence... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. 
So now in Acts 25, we have a new governor. Felix was the governor in 24. He's been replaced by Festus. History tells us it's because Felix did not do the best job of keeping the peace, which was one of the main jobs of the Roman governor. Collect the taxes and keep the people from revolting. And if too many riots occurred, uh, the governor was simply replaced by someone who could keep better order which is probably then why the new governor, one of the first things he does, he's in Caesarea, his capital, for only three days, and he makes the long journey to Jerusalem to check things out. Uh, And the first thing that we're told about his visit is that the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews, they approach him, and they ask him for a favor. And the favor is kind of couched. I'm sure it was, can you send Paul down? He's been in Caesarea a couple years now. We have some unfinished business with him. We'd like to have him come before the council. But the real plan is just simply to ambush him and kill him on the way. Now think about this. Paul's been pretty much off the scene for two years. He was last in Jerusalem two years earlier. He's now been in prison. He is unable to preach to the masses. We don't know that he wrote any letters from Caesarea Philippi to encourage churches. He certainly hasn't planted any churches We have no record of him doing much of anything other than interacting with Felix. The original plot to silence this man uh, was recorded in Acts 23, and it told of 40 nameless men who said, we are not going to eat. We have bound ourselves with an oath. We're not going to eat until this man is dead. They went to the chief priest with one favor. They said, Paul's locked up in the garrison. We need to get him out in the street. Can you send a message and just ask for him to be brought to the council, to the Sanhedrin? And while he's on the way, we'll be able to do what we're going to do. So it's gone. The plot was discovered, of course, which is why Paul was um, transferred under cover of night to Caesarea Philippi, where he was safe and kept. Um, And it's ironic. um, He's safer as a prisoner than he would be as a free man. But now the driving force behind wanting to kill Paul is no longer 40 nameless men. It's the chief priests. It's the leading men in Jerusalem. Think about it. These are the educated. These are the ones who stand up in the Sabbath and and read from the scroll the words of God. And they're planning an assassination in their spare time. They hate Paul. And their hatred is also reflected in the fact that if they succeed, if they can talk Festus into sending Paul down, Paul will not come alone. He will be guarded by Roman soldiers, probably six, eight, ten, who knows. They will escort him because it's their job to make sure that he arrives safe and alive, even as a prisoner. For the Jews' plan to work, for Festus to release him, They're going to have to hide on the way, ambush him, which is what the text says they want to do. They're not going to only be able to kill Paul in all probability. There's going to be some Roman blood spilt, and that will not go well with Rome. There will be retribution. There will be Jewish blood spilt if they manage to kill Paul. They don't care. They hate Paul. They hate his message. They hate his Savior. And their hatred has made them blind to the carnage that they're going to bring on their own heads if their plot were to succeed. Well, Festus denies their request for what amounts to a a prisoner transfer. 
But he does say, we can hold a second trial if you'd like. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now, I don't know if that's ego on Felix, uh, Festus's part. No, we're going to do this in my backyard. I don't know if he's establishing the political boundaries. I don't come to you, you come to me. Uh, but for whatever reason, he says, no, if you, if you want to talk to Paul, you're going to do it at my place. So Paul is kept in Caesarea Philippi. He's kept under Roman guard, and he's safe. Verse 6. After he, Festus, stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. The Jews have had two years to prepare for this. They had one trial. Now two years have elapsed, and they failed at that first trial. Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but at the end of chapter 24, we read to do the Jews a favor. He left him in prison for two more years. The Jews have had two years to prepare for this second trial. And I've always wondered, why didn't they just lie through their teeth? I mean, once you've decided you want to murder a man, being honest kind of falls down on your priority list. They want to murder Paul. But for whatever reason, they cannot concoct convincing lies. You've got 40 assassins. Just make them 40 liars. And you can probably get Paul convicted. It's possible that there was a record of that first trial, a transcript, and so they're kind of hemmed in a little bit. Can't bring in a whole bunch of new charges. We can't say things too different than what we said before. Uh, at any rate, Paul is allowed to respond to the charges. And he doesn't feel the need to say very much. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Period, full stop, that's all he has to say. It's not the most robust defense I've come across, but apparently the accusations were so clearly not proven that it's enough for even Festus to realize that, that Paul's innocent. Paul doesn't feel like he needs to say any more. But rather than free him, he just backtracks on his earlier refusal to send him to Jerusalem. This is getting a little messier than, Paul, than uh, Festus anticipated. The, the charges aren't clear. Paul doesn't seem to be intimidated. Nobody seems to want to cut a deal. How can I wash my hands of this? I know they wanted him in Jerusalem. I'll send him to Jerusalem. We read in verse 9, but Festus... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Just like Felix before him, Festus is not interested in guilt or innocence. He's interested in what's politically expedient. Keeping peace with these people meant figuring out what they wanted, and if they wanted Paul, how can I give them Paul and wash my hands of this man? Festus has exactly the same motivation that Felix expressed earlier in uh, chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 27, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
desiring to do the, the Jews a favor. He says, do you want to go to Jerusalem? They have almost the same language. So Festus has asserted his authority over the disposition of Paul. No, he's my prisoner. You'll come see me. And then as soon as he starts to get in and he says, I really don't want that authority anymore. You can have him. However, Paul has a trump card that apparently others have forgotten about. <clears throat> he says, Acts 25, verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. That's a gutsy thing to say to the governor. This is a sham, and you know it's a sham. If then... I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus now has a problem, bigger than it might first appear. He can't send Paul to Jerusalem anymore. And so the Jews are going to be angry. The plot to ambush him on the way is done. He knows he's innocent, but if he releases them, the Jews will be even more angry. And they're kind of the ones whose cooperation he needs to peacefully collect the taxes that Rome loves so much. And he can't continue the policy of Felix, of just keeping him in prison indefinitely, because Paul has appealed to what was their version of the Supreme Court. I appeal to the Emperor Caesar. And yet, here's the problem. He's got to send him to Caesar, and he has nothing to charge him with. He may not know that he has to send him to Caesar. He may be wondering if Paul, does he really have that right? So we read in verse 12 that Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. He had to get counsel. Can, he, can this guy do that? And apparently he said, yeah, he, he can do that. Now think with me just for a moment. Let's, let's step out of, of Paul's situation and think about the Christians that have been praying for him. I hope, I believe, that the church had been on their knees for this man. They had heard that he had been almost torn apart by a riot in the temple. I think they would have gathered just as when Peter was arrested and just pray earnestly and fervently for this man. They find out that the soldiers spare him uh, he's under arrest, but he's safe. Then they find out there's a plot against him, and he's been spirited off to Caesarea Philippi, okay? There's a trial, and they hear the trial goes well. Paul makes his defense, and he's convincing, and then they find out he's not being released. And a year goes by, and another year goes by, and this is the man who many of them came to faith under. This is the man who, who wrote so much to them that built their faith. And he's locked up. Where is God in all this? Part, part of the weightiness of chapter 25 is that last verse in 24 where it tells us Paul was there two years. An innocent man was kept in jail as a political pawn for two years. Now there's a new governor. There's a new trial. Surely there's going to be hope that he'll be released. And that justice, finally God, you are going to give us justice. And it turns out, as the song says, the new boss is the same as the old boss. 
and an innocent man remains a prisoner. Now, if you're a first century Christian, if you're one of those people that I wanted you to kind of think about who, are, who love Paul, they love the church, they're praying for him, you know all this. It doesn't get to you immediately, but, but the news comes. There's a fair chance you've met Paul, that you've heard him preach. I just want to ask, how's your faith doing about now? Where's God when maybe the most important single church planter in the history of Christianity is locked up in Caesarea Philippi, unable to preach to any large groups, unable to plant any churches, unable to visit the churches that he planted to encourage their faith? Where is God in all this? If you're someone who thinks life in this age should be fair, you won't have much fun in Acts 25. You won't have much fun with the life of Paul, truth be told. But if you understand that God often works not to spare his children from suffering, but to strengthen them for suffering. As we just saw, that's, that's one of Paul's motives. I want to strengthen you for your season of suffering. Then Acts 25 might just have some hope for us. Because that's what's going on. He's still unjustly locked up, but there's no complaint there's no whimpering. He's calm. He's collected. He's respectful. We're going to see shortly that Paul has both direct promises from God, I think, that, that, that keep him in this, this, this good spirit, as well as just an understanding of who God is and how God works and that, that show that he is in control in this story. So Paul, he's appealed to Caesar. Festus says, to Caesar you'll go. But now, what charges? The false charges that have been made twice now and that the Jews have been unable to prove? Something about some religious debate about some guy named Jesus. Who, he's dead. He's not dead. Caesar hasn't heard of him. Caesar doesn't care. Festus does not want to appear incompetent or foolish before Caesar, but he set himself up to do just that. He's going to send an innocent man to the Supreme Court and he doesn't have a coherent accusation against him. Well, into this dilemma walks King Agrippa. He has his sister with him, Bernice. He's visiting the new governor. He was part of the Jewish, I'll call it an aristocracy. It was appointed by Rome. His great-grandfather was the first of them. It has been passed on down. He's the fourth generation with the title king. Um, but they've been appointed by Rome. Um, here's how Festus describes to King Agrippa the dilemma that he finds himself in. Verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being a loss at how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now, you might want to know the full name of King Agrippa. It's Herod Agrippa. And yes, he's from that family. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who slaughtered the baby boys in the area of Bethlehem. 
Herod the Great also executed three of his own sons. He wrote a fourth one out of his will. Uh, he had some other children who survived, but the emperor at the time, Augustus, was quoted as saying, it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. One of his sons that did survive, Herod Antipas, is best remembered for beheading John the Baptist. He's called that fox, tell Herod that fox in Luke 13 by Jesus. And when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas, he and his soldiers mock him, they dress him in a scarlet robe, and they send him back to Pilate to be executed. He has a son, now third generation, Herod Agrippa I. He's the one who had James executed. He's the one who put Peter in prison, and when an angel led Peter out, Herod had the guards executed because they let the prisoner escape. He's also the one who died from worms after accepting the crowd's praise. Oh, the voice of a God and not a man. And he did not give glory to God, and we read he was eaten by worms. And finally, his son, fourth generation, is the Herod in our story, Herod Agrippa II. He's the one, <laughs> he's the one who's going to decide what's right and wrong. He's the one who's going to sit in, ju in judgment of Paul and help write the accusations against Paul. It's true, he probably knows something more about Jewish law than, than Festus would have. Um, but if you heard, and I'm sure word got out, that anyone from the family of Herod was suddenly involved in your trial, you probably would not have been too thrilled. The frequent murder of innocent people just marked this family. Nevertheless, under the providence of God, he and his sister are soon to hear Paul's defense. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, th this, is, this is a staging, if ever there was. Get the picture. I don't know how big the hall was, decent-sized, and, and the king and his sister come in. They're not wearing jeans and a T-shirt, folks. They're in their royal regalia. They've got their crowns, their jewelry. They are looking as impressive as they can because guess what? They have invited all the prominent men of the city. Anybody who's anywhere has been invited to this particular spectacle. Um, the, the Roman military brass is there, fully dressed as they would have been. Um, it is, as Luke describes, a scene of great pomp. Now, pomp can be used in an okay way. I really don't like any of the uses, but... Dictionary.com defines it as an ostentatious or vain display, especially of dignity or importance. And that's exactly what we have here. They're staging it. Aren't we beautiful? Aren't we important? Aren't we powerful? Bring in the prisoner who's not going to be dressed nice. Who knows the last time he had a bath or the last time he had a clean change of clothes. On top of that, Scripture leads us to believe that he was not particularly impressive uh, in his stature. Um, he, he admits to being accused, we don't know if it's true or not, that his speech was contemptible. He may not have been a great orator. It just was powerful because he told the truth. But I doubt, no matter their efforts here, that Paul is in awe in the least. How are you in awe of man? How are you in awe of King Herod when you've seen King Jesus? I don't think they, they Paul didn't bat an eye. Bring it on. 
Festus then publicly this time states his dilemma. Verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petition me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. No kidding, Festus. That's the end of chapter 25. Um, I won't steal any thunder from chapter 26. There's some really neat things in there. That'll be for next week. What I do want to do now, though, is just circle back, kind of to where we began, which is Luke's purpose in recording the events of Acts 25. And I said at the beginning that I thought Luke was just honoring and reflecting what he had already recorded as Paul's stated purpose for his life. I want to give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage others to endure suffering well. So how does this chapter serve those goals? How can the early church hearing of this story and you and I reading this story be strengthened through suffering, not keeping silent, but testifying about our faith as opportunity is given? How does Acts 25 help with all that? And first I need to begin with a little bit of a disclaimer. We're not Paul. And I know you know that. But Paul had some very specific promises from God that you and I don't have. Um, And to the the degree that he's depending on those, um, he's not all that helpful. We'll get to them in a minute. The the specific things that God said to Paul. But behind that and beyond that, Paul knew who God was. Paul knew that God was sovereign. He knew that Jesus had said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. God is sovereign over a bird that you could buy for half a penny. I know that Paul knew that because of all the things he wrote. We sang some of it. Who can stand against us? It's it's, it's a rough paraphrase of what Paul writes at the end of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not together with him freely give us all things? Nothing will separate us from his love. Paul is a sovereign God. So apart from any specific promises, I think he would have been cool as a cucumber no matter what you threw at him. And when we look at Acts 25 then, just knowing that that, that Paul has this big God, this sovereign God, how is God protecting him? What will he do? I begin to see God all over the place. Let me show you some of them. For example, I take courage and my faith is built in this goodness of God, even in the midst of suffering. When I see that the best educated men in Israel can't get their act together, they can't make a coherent story. They can't make a coherent lie. It's not that hard, people. All sorts of people have been convicted, sent to prison, killed because people were willing to lie about what really happened. They will relentlessly plot to murder a man 
but they cannot put together a convincing story to tell. Why is that? I think it's a little bit like when Balaam couldn't bring himself to say what Balak, who had hired him, wanted him to say. Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam takes the money, and what comes out of his mouth isn't what he intended, and it wasn't what Balak wanted. Who made man's mouth? God says, I did. They can't get their story together. They can't get their act together, I believe, not because they weren't intelligent, not because they weren't capable, but because God would not let them. He is determined. No one's going to kill Paul until I'm done with him. I have ministry for Paul. I have letters for Paul to write. I have churches for Paul to plant. I have saints for Paul to encourage. You don't touch him until I'm done. Paul did have a specific promise as well. Acts 23, 11. The following night, this is right after he'd been arrested, um, uh, saved from the mob early on in the riot in the temple. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul not only had this general knowledge that his God was sovereign, a bird doesn't fall to the ground, let alone an apostle, apart from the will of God, he had a promise to say, you're, you're untouchable, you're immortal, at least until I get you to Rome, because you're going to testify for me there. Not only this, I, I'm so encouraged as I watch God turn the intentions of the Jews in the story to silence Paul. They want to kill him, the ultimate silence. But they can't kill him, they're content to have him in prison. But what happens when he's in prison? Who does he get to talk to? people he would have had no access to. He gets to talk to governors. He gets to talk to kings. He gets to talk to soldiers, none of whom would have given him the time of day. When Paul <clears throat> was first saved, he was on the road to Damascus. Most of you know the story. He's blinded. Uh, he's recovering. And God is going to send a man named Ananias to go and pray for Paul. Ananias says, I really, I really don't want to go because I, I've heard of this man. I know how much harm he's done. Acts 9.15 records this, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Carry my name before the Gentiles. Check. He's done that. Carry my name before kings. It happened while he was in prison. It would happen later in Rome. Carry my name before the children of Israel. Done. And do it all while suffering for the sake of my name. In Acts we're not, when we read of the struggles of Paul, when we, when we read of the injustice done to him, we're not reading of this horrible, discouraging, unfair, unjust, out-of-control season in Paul's life. We're reading about how God, who loved Paul, placed him where he wanted him, kept him safe, and gave him ministries that he would have had no other access to. Paul got to do what he most wanted to do. He got to preach to one and all. And if you can't preach to crowds, 
then he'll preach to kings, wicked as they are. He did that. He did that from prison. He did that while suffering. He did that while plots hung over his head wanting to kill him. Also that the church and us could see him being persecuted, but not moping. In prison, not complaining. Doesn't know his future with any great detail, but not confused or dejected. It was Paul who wrote, all things work together for good. He didn't just preach it. He lived it. Not just part of his epistle, it's part of his life. Not only that, it's his living this out that would in fact fulfill his second desire, which was to give hope and strength and courage to other Christians that he also knew had seasons of suffering ahead of them. When Paul, he's, he's arrested in Jerusalem, he's sent to Caesarea Philippi. A little after two years there, he's finally sent to Rome. Quite an adventure getting there, but he gets there. From Rome, still in prison, under house arrest, he writes a letter to the church in Philippi. And here's what he says, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me and a lot has happened to him. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Stop there. How did they become confident in the Lord? By his imprisonment. By seeing how he handled it by seeing how he persevered, by seeing how the Lord just was sovereign over the circumstances. There were plots against him, and the man is alive. They tried to silence him, and he's preaching to kings and emperors and the, and the praetorian guard. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are what? They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. No prison for Paul, no boldness for the brothers. That's what that text is telling you. It was his time in prison that had no end in sight that was making other people bold. It's almost as though being stoned to death or near death, being kept in prison for years unjustly has given Paul a credibility that he otherwise would not have. Let most of you know the book of Job. One of my favorite sentences in there. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. If that had been said in chapter 1, it wouldn't carry much weight. Because Job was on top of the world in chapter 1. Kids were alive. Money's rolling in. He's healthy, he's happy, he's a man of good reputation, and deservedly so. It doesn't come in chapter 1. It doesn't come when he's on the mountain. It comes when he's lost his children, lost his wealth, lost his health, and now his friends are saying, what'd you do wrong? When he says in that circumstance, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, it carries weight that would not be there if it was said from comfort, if it was said from wealth and peace and good relationships. 
And I love, I take courage from seeing how it is that the sins of Festus and Felix have actually become the means of Paul getting safely to Rome. They should have released him. If they were honest men, if they were men of integrity, they would have released him, but they weren't. They're political creatures who don't care. Let a man stay in prison unjustly as long as we get our taxes, as long as there's no revolt, no riot. Their sin became Paul's salvation. Had he, had he been released, he probably would have been killed. They were determined. I won't eat until this man's dead. But they never got another shot at him. He remained in Roman custody the rest of his life. When it's time to, to, to send him to Italy, he gets his own protective squad of soldiers. And all expenses paid. In many ways, I think the prisoner is the freest man in the story. He's at peace with God. He's getting to do what he wants. It's to a smaller audience, I understand. It's to a different audience, but he is getting to preach. He's getting to, to talk about the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and he's getting to strengthen the faith in the hand of the people that he loved. That's what drove him in his ministry. Comfort and safety are just not on his horizon. He doesn't care. Paul would not fit into our culture very well. I know most of us are never going to experience the persecutions endured by Paul. He is unusual for any number of reasons. But it doesn't mean that we cannot have an effective witness and the opportunity to strengthen others because all of you are going to suffer in some way. And I don't mean to make that sound just future tense as though none of you have suffered yet. I know many of you have. Many of you are. All of you will. And like Paul, it's going to be our response to the suffering that testifies to whether or not we really believe what we should be preaching as Christians, that God is good, God is sovereign. Every promise of him is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Like Paul, the Apostle Peter wrote a great deal about suffering. How it's common, should be expected. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you as though something strange were happening. It's not strange. You should expect it. Use that suffering to glorify God. Trust God as you're suffering, and He is faithful. Bob read from 1 Peter 4. I asked for that text in that same letter, which is just shot through with references to suffering. Peter wrote this, 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's what Peter means. You're going to suffer. And it's the hope you have in the midst of suffering that is going to open doors for you to testify about Jesus, to tell other people why you have hope. People who are not interested in your story, they're not interested in your testimony, of course they go to church. Of course they read their Bible. Of course they say they love Jesus. Look how easy their life is. 
They'll make the very accusation against you that the devil made against God about Job. Of course he worships you. You spoil him. Those same people who don't care what you have to say when you're on the mountain will pull up a chair when you're in the valley. When they see you hurting, when they know that you've lost precious people, precious things, when they know you've been treated unjustly and they see in you hope, they become interested, not all of them, but some of them. Tell me why you have hope. I know what's happening in your life. I wouldn't have hope. You have hope. Why? And the door's open. A door that would not have been opened had you not suffered. So Acts 25 it's not recording a tragedy. It's not just recording an injustice. It's not just a, an, another chapter between 24 and 26 where Paul's in prison. People are plotting against him. Nothing really very much happens except he says, send me to Caesar. It's much more than that. It's recording the opportunities given to Paul to declare the gospel of grace and to strengthen the hand of all the Christians who are waiting and watching this drama unfold. Some, almost in real time, there was not much real time in, that, in those days, but they got the news quickly. And some, because we're reading the story 2,000 years later. Let's pray. Father, um, Peter wants us to live in such a way that people ask us about our hope in the midst of suffering, but they will not ask about what they cannot see. So the hope has to be there, Lord, and we know that, and it has to be real. And I confess before you, and I confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters, that sometimes it's not real. Sometimes we are overwhelmed by circumstances and by suffering. No amount of scolding or admonition will change that. But if we could see what Paul saw, if we could see more of your glory, if we could experience more of your presence, then maybe, maybe we could say with him that light, momentary affliction is producing in me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me tell you about my hope. Because they will ask that. Lord, we can't do that in and of ourselves. It's a work of your spirit. But I pray now as we close in worship, having looked at your word, that you will be at work in us to look beyond the immediacy of our suffering to a God who has good purposes for it. Give us faith in your sovereign